Amen. Well, good morning. We made it through winter. It's a long weekend. Isn't that wonderful? Summer goes by so fast, and I can remember just always thinking in August, oh, it's going to be over soon, and winter's going to come, and then this year I think winter started like in September. At least in October it was so cold, it feels like we've had six months or seven months. And so I don't care if it's 14 degrees out today or if it's 10 below zero, winter's officially over. I'm going to go outside in my shorts either way and enjoy it. And we are moving into the spring season, into the summer season. I hope you're excited. And that's kind of evidence this morning. The May long weekend is the Exodus weekend in a lot of ways. And we, uh, people take advantage of the weather or go visit family or get away for a bit of a break before they uh, wait another month or two, maybe and officially take their summer vacation. So I hope it's going to be a refreshing weekend for you. You deserve it. You've mucked through the winter months, the long months, and you deserve a break. And I hope as well you've got some time booked off for the summer and that uh, you're able just to get refreshed and recharged. And in the midst of all of that, have time for the Lord to speak to you and draw you close to Him and grow and just be renewed in your spirit we say it all the time, but no matter how much vacation we take, how much physical rest we take, our spirit finds its rest in God, always finds its rest in God. So I hope you'll take advantage of time that you can get away, that time that you can wind down a little bit, take advantage of those times to plug into the Lord in maybe a, a deeper way than you have through the busy season. Our scripture this morning is found in 1 Kings chapter 19, and it's a, a thought that came to my mind as you just saw in the little video. It's a thought that came to my mind for the long weekend, and that we're trusting the Lord for some great things as we move into the spring and into the summer, but uh, for this long weekend, just a, a simple word that I wanted to share with you before we uh, share in the Lord's table this morning. First Kings chapter 19, you may be very familiar with the story. We're going to pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 19, but up until this time, you may remember that uh, Elijah, God's prophet, had a showdown with the prophets of Baal, the prophets, the priests of Baal, the satanic occult that was under the rule of Queen Jezebel, who was a wicked influence on King Ahab, who himself was one of the, one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history. And it was on Mount Carmel that God showed up in power. He showed up in fire from heaven, consuming the sacrifice on the altar, demonstrated that he is more powerful than all the false gods that Israel had bowed down to for many years under this occultish religion. And it was at that time that the hearts of the people were turned back to God and the prophets of Baal were defeated, they were destroyed, they were killed. And of course, word gets back to Queen Jezebel and that's where we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 19. We read that Ahab the king told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also. If I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow, then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he may die, saying, It is enough now, Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at, the head, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. 
And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights up to Horeb. Talk about supernatural carbs, eh? The Mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? For those who may not be familiar with the history of Israel, Elijah was a prophet of God who lived some 800 years or so before Jesus, and he was a man that God had raised up to confront what had become the spiritual apathy, the lethargy that had gripped an entire nation in the nation, an entire generation rather, in the nation of Israel. And then we read that after a, a miraculous showdown between him and the prophets of Baal that we read about in the previous chapter, that the people turned their back to God. It was an amazing move of the Spirit of God, the presence of God among His people again. Just an amazing wind of revival that began to blow uh, in the nation and began to just blow out that apathy and that sin. And people were repenting on their faces before God. And yet immediately following this historic event, this historic victory, we read that Elijah is on the run in fear for his life from the Queen Jezebel who threatened to kill him. A threat that really, when you look at the larger picture of all that had transpired in those few days, a, a threat that really was inconsequential. In Kings uh, 17, for example, we read that Elijah, that he stands up and he delivers this word that God has given him in the face of this wicked King Ahab with no fear. We read also that he had told the king that there would be no rain in the land for, for until, he, until he spoke it and the, and the rain would fall again. He says, except by my word. And then the Lord tells Elijah to go to the Cherith Brook where he sends ravens to bring him food twice a day, miraculously provide for him. And from there, God tells him to go to Zarephath where there's a woman, a widow, who is going to care for him as well. So he's experienced all these things. The word of the Lord comes to him time and time again, and he has this miraculous provision. And I read that I thought, you know, that's really what God does for you and me. It's what God does for you and me when we choose to position ourselves in life, so that we might receive a word from the Lord. When we receive those words from the Lord, we also receive the assurance that there is an endless supply that the Lord has available to us if we just simply abide in Him. And so in 1 Kings 18, Elijah defeats and he executes the priests of Baal, and then he goes to the top of Mount Carmel and he intercedes for rain to return. The Bible says that as a great rain begins to fall, that the Holy Spirit comes upon Elijah so powerfully that he actually outruns the horses and the chariots of the king. Can you imagine that? 
I mean, here the, the prophet says rain is coming. It begins to fall. And it's, it's coming down in torrents. And the soldiers, the, the armies, they know that if they don't get back to the city, that the horses and the chairs are going to get bogged down in all the mud. So they're just, they're just whipping the horses for all they're worth. And the horse, I don't know how fast they go, but these weren't, you know, Clydesdales that were pulling the chariots. These were thoroughbreds. I mean, these horses were running full out. And, and here's the soul. Just imagine that they're in the chariots. They're, they're just whipping the horses, whipping the horses, and they're just flying, flying through the desert on the way to the city. And they're looking ahead, looking ahead, looking ahead, and in the corner of their eye, they see this old man with a long beard and his clothes wrapped around him. <laughs> just hoofing it, passing them. Can you imagine what they must have thought? Like, what's going on? He, he beats them to the city. Elijah in their eyes, was an incredible man of God who was unstoppable. Elijah was a man who had such confidence, and he won these incredible victories. He had seen these wonderful revelations. But then something happens. And in 1 Kings 19, we see him running, not from a physical threat. He's running from merely a verbal threat of this wicked king Jezebel. And it wasn't a threat from somebody who actually had the power anymore to pull it off. I mean, if you can imagine, it'd be like being on the battlefield and running somebody through and they're, they're laying down. I hate to admit, but it kind of reminds me of Monty Python and, <laughs> and the Black Knight, you know, laying there with no arms and no legs and saying, come back and fight me, you coward. I know none of you have seen it. I know it's a classic, but I, I highly recommend it. Maybe I shouldn't, but it's just part of my past, so... I, it's all behind me, but, but that's what I think of with Jezebel. I mean, she has been defeated. All of her priests, all her authority is, is wrong, robbed from her, and it's almost like just this last gasp of a dying enemy saying, come back, I'm going to kill you. And for some reason, Elijah is terrified. He panics, and he runs for his life. He didn't run from the wicked king Ahab when God told him to confront him. He didn't run from the challenge of announcing that there'd be a drought in the land until he spoke the word again. That didn't, that didn't scare him. He didn't run from the challenge of the widow Zarephath. She had a dead son, and God says, raise him from the dead. That doesn't scare him. And yet he runs from a queen who doesn't even have the power to carry out the threat. I think some of us know what that's like sometimes. We know what it is to witness the presence and power of God in our lives but then it just seems like out of the blue, something very small by comparison happens. Something that seems to threaten us, and we just don't have the strength to combat it. Something relatively inconsequential happens, and we just find all of a sudden that we want to give up, and we want to run away. The question I want to ask this morning is what was happening in Elijah's heart after all that he experienced to make him feel so fearful, so discouraged by a mere threat. I mean, it wasn't as if he was in her presence. It wasn't as if she was standing there face to face with the armies around her and made this threat. This, this threat comes secondhand. It comes through a messenger of the queen who had been defeated. And yet he's terrified. If you've heard this message preached before from this text, most commonly people, and I've done it myself in the past, and it may be true, but many just automatically default to the rationale, well, what he was experiencing was battle fatigue. I mean, you just think of all he had been through these last few days and, and, and all those spiritual highs. I mean, he must have just been so physically and emotionally spent 
that fear crept in and depression crept in. And that, that may be the case because many of us, I'm sure, have experienced that in, in other scenarios where things have gone so well or just so, so powerfully or have experienced some things in God and then all of a sudden it just seems like you get hit from a blind spot. And so it is possible, but I think there was something more at play in Elijah's heart. And I think it is something that's revealed in Elijah's prayer in verse 4. The scripture says that Elijah went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And that particular phrase, right or wrong, is what kind of jumped out to me. That I am no better than my father's. And it seems to expose an attitude that had crept into Elijah's heart. And I believe in what we see following, it was an attitude that God begins to deal with in Elijah. Elijah's statement makes me wonder if maybe it was something that he had come to believe in a, in a very subtle way. That he actually began to believe somehow that he was, in just a small way, that he was better than his father's. That because of all that he'd experienced in God, all that God had allowed him to see and be part of, that there began to creep into his heart this attitude that maybe I am a little bit better than those who have come before me. Maybe the nation really is lucky to have somebody like me. I know that's never crossed your mind. You know, if my wife just realized what she's got. I'm not speaking personally because she knows. But we can have that attitude as well. And Elijah, it seems, has this attitude. And I don't think I'm reading anything into this story. And the reason is, is because Elijah also gets this idea into his head that we see in verse 10, that he's the only one left. Lord, I, even I, am the only one left serving you. I'm the only one standing for you. And when I read that, I just think that his criteria seems to be different from God's criteria. And so what does he do? It's almost as if he sees other people different from how God sees them. In fact, the Lord would later say to Elijah in verse 18 that there are 7,000 other people, Elijah, who are standing for me just like you are. 7,000 other people who love me, who are devoted to me. Thousands of believers. I mean, we're talking 7,000. How does Elijah miss them? I can see if Elijah said, oh, Lord, there's only a few hundred of us. I can understand that. We all have small circles of friends. But he says, there's nobody. And the Lord says, no, 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 Elijah, there's 7,000 people that you haven't noticed. And I kind of wonder if it's not as if Elijah is judging others by how he perceives himself in the light of all his experiences experiences that were wonderful, but maybe led him to believe that somehow I'm better than other people. They're not like me. I'm better than those who came before me. It reminds me of Luke 18 of the story of the self-righteous Pharisee, the religious leader, who maybe having enjoyed a measure of spiritual success and, and position through his life, that instead of coming into the presence of God and acknowledging his daily need of God's grace, his daily need of God's sustaining presence that has been the portion that has brought blessing to his life. Instead of acknowledging that in prayer, what does he do? He prays, oh God, thank you that I am not a sinner like everyone else. 
especially like that tax collector over there. I'm sure you've done that sometimes. You come to church and you've worshipped the Lord. Oh, yes, you have. You've worshipped the Lord. Oh, Lord, I just thank you for your goodness. And in the corner of your eye, it's like, and I just thank you. I'm not like them. Oh, I just thank you that my life's better than theirs. I just, you know, I just, whatever. You know, I just thank you I'm not in their shoes. Maybe you haven't done that. Maybe that's just me. But I wonder if the same thing had not crept into Elijah's heart and God had to deal with it. And then again, I could be using my imagination, but I wonder if the moment that he hears Jezebel's threat is the same moment that God lifts his hand from Elijah just to let him see what he's like without the Holy Spirit. Without that daily communion with God and the dependence upon his spirit, I wonder if just for a moment God wanted Elijah to see that Elijah, you're just an ordinary man like everybody else. I love you. I'll use you. But I want you to keep things in perspective here. In fact, James says the same thing, doesn't he? In James chapter 5, verse 17, James says, Elijah was a man with human frailties, just like what? Just like all of us. And if Elijah was a human being with human frailties, just like all of us, what does that mean? It means you're the same. You're just like Elijah. Elijah's just like you. We are just like each other. We're just ordinary people who have human frailties who need God. And God had to remind Elijah of that fact. Why? So he could continue to use him to do the things that he still had for him to do. And there were some wonderful things yet for him to do. You know, over the years, as you and I walk with God, I thank the Lord that we grow stronger. I thank the Lord that we, that we change the way that we live. I thank the Lord that we find freedom from things that used to hold us back. I thank the Lord that we get to minister in the power of God's Spirit. But you know what? If we're not careful, this subtle thought begins to creep into our heart that somehow we're better than we really are. That somehow we're just kind of all that. You know, we're just a little bit better than others in some ways. Proverbs says that pride leads to destruction. And a proud attitude brings ruin. What is pride? Well, it's many things, but one thing that comes to my mind is pride is simply forming an opinion of myself that's different than what God says, what God has said about me. Now, I know the Scriptures, and the Scriptures say that we are sons and daughters of God. That's a wonderful thing. We are children of God. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You see, that's the key. Because the Lord wants us to understand that all that we are, we are because of Him. We are because of who we are in. It's because of who has hidden us in His righteousness, in His strength, in His glory. That's where our confidence comes from. The Lord wants us to understand that without Him, we are weak. And we are every one of us in need of a Savior. That's who we really are without Him. But in Him, we are all those things that He's made available to us. I love the story in 2 Samuel 24 of King David. David has enjoyed just incredible victories, miraculous victories. He has the support of the people. He's been bringing the kingdoms together. He's, he's expanding the boundaries. And in 2 Samuel 24, we read that David came to a place where he did something he should not have done. He actually, as the king, issues an order that a census be taken of all the fighting men in the nation of Israel and Judah. 
David's just kind of sitting back and thinking about all the great exploits and no doubt probably comparing himself to other nations and where he is and the victories they've won, how good things are, and recognizing that probably in the days ahead that other nations are going to invade or other nations are going to try to undo or take away what God has done in their midst. So David has this idea and says, let's number the fighting men in the nation. And they come to find out that there's 800,000 men who are able to carry the sword. Valiant men in the nation of Israel, 500,000 in the nation of Judah. That's wonderful. We have 1.3 million soldiers ready to go. But as soon as he decides to issue that decree, what does Joab do? His general, his fighting man beside him through many, many battles. Joab says, David, no, 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 please don't do this. Please don't number our armies. David, I've fought with you. I've been alongside you. I've been part of those victories. I've been in the midst of those battles where we have come against armies that far outnumbered us. We've come against number, uh, armies who had superior firepower to us. David, I know the reason for our victories. It was because of the presence of God. It was nothing else. David, whatever you do, don't number the soldiers. Don't put your confidence, don't put your trust in your strength, in our ability. We know that we're here because of the sovereign love and presence and the covenant of God. That's why we're here. It's got nothing to do with us. So whatever you do, don't number the men. It's not about numbers. It's about the presence of God. God makes us into something other than what we are. But David goes ahead and does it, and as soon as he does it, he is so convicted. He realizes he has sinned, and he calls out to God for forgiveness. And God, in his wisdom, gives David three choices. And one of those choices is, says, David, I will allow you to flee from the enemy for three months. That's one of the choices. Now, David didn't choose that one. But I believe the reason for that choice, just like the others, is what God was saying to David, is, David, I want you to understand, not just, not just my purpose, I want you to show you that you have no power without my presence. I want to remind you of that because you've forgotten that, 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 David, I am the source of your strength. You see, David, without me, you're no different than Elijah. Without me, without my presence, without your dependence upon me, I can promise you, you would not experience great victories. You would flee from the very threats of the enemy. That's where you'd be. The enemy's voice would make you tremble if it wasn't for my presence in your life, if it wasn't for the fact that every single time you depended on me and I had your back and I was with you and together we won great victories. Now looking back at 1 Kings 19, God begins to talk to Elijah about the way out of his struggle. He says in verse 7, The angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Elijah, I've got something for you to do. I've got a place for you to go, but you can't do it in your own strength. It's too great for you, so you have to eat this food that I'm providing. And it's almost like God is confirming Elijah's assessment that he was no better than his father's. That he was just an ordinary man who needed God's presence like everybody else. I want to ask us a simple question this morning as we prepare for the Lord's table. I want to ask us a question that I think we really need to settle in our hearts this morning as we move into a season where, thank the Lord, we are able to be refreshed. We're able to have some downtime. We're able to regroup and refocus and, and relax. Those are very, very important things. Recreation is very important. And the word itself means it's a time where, where God, if we allow him, he will recreate. 
those things that have been that have been maybe worn down, worn out, whatever. The Lord is just able to recreate in a beautiful way through these, these times that we have. But I want to ask you this simple question. What is the root of prayerlessness in a man or a woman who has seen the work of God in their lives? What is it that keeps God's people away from His presence? That keeps God's people away from pressing into His presence and just, just loving to be with Him. Now, I know there's a whole bunch of reasons. It reminds me, in grade 8, I had a history teacher. He was a little Scottish man, and if, if, if anybody was late for class or late for an assignment, whatever it may be, he had one simple question. Is that a reason or an excuse? Now, thankfully, I, didn't, I wasn't uh, very good in comprehension in that day. I never understood what he meant, but uh, I guess I had a lot of excuses. But he's saying, is it a reason or an excuse? And we have a lot of excuses, but what is the reason for our prayerlessness? Many of us will say, well, pastor, just, you know, life is busy. Uh, or just sometimes I'm, I'm too tired. Whatever it might be. But I really believe the root of prayerlessness is simply pride. Pride says, Lord, I know about those who have gone before me. I know about our spiritual fathers and our history. I've, I've read their stories. I've read their testimonies, how they, how they sought you with prayer and fasting, how they rose in the early morning of the hours, how they would weep and pray over the Scriptures, how they'd be the, uh, to the church service an hour or two before it started, that the Holy Spirit would move. Lord, I understand all those things, but, but that was them. I don't need that. You see, I'm better than my father's. I'm better than the previous generation. I've got a different insight. I've got a different revelation. And please don't misunderstand me, but today what's preached so much is just all about grace. And I don't undermine grace, friends. Don't, don't misunderstand me, but it's just so much. It, just, it becomes this sloppy grace where we just kind of live life on our own terms as somehow we know something our forefathers didn't know. Somehow we've got some kind of insight that those poor saints who, who just spent all those hours in prayer and calling to God and in the presence of the Lord, that, that somehow we know something they don't know and somehow we don't need what they needed. You see, I'm better than those who've gone before me. Lord, I believe in you and I love to read their testimonies, but I don't need to do what they did. I'm okay like I am. I think prayerlessness is an undeclared declaration that I really don't need the presence of God. Prayerlessness is a declaration that I don't need to depend on Him daily. But you know, God loves us so much that He will deal with that by allowing fear to creep into our lives, allowing confusion to come into our homes, our relationships, our finances, Whatever it may be, he loves us too much to allow us to stay in that deceptive, you know, attitude, that posture. And so he will allow things to come into our lives that strike fear into our heart or bring struggles in our heart. Things that never would have rattled us before. But now for some reason, these things throw us off or these things seem to turn things upside down. In verse 11, we see that Elijah is hiding out in a cave. And I want to suggest this morning that when we lose our dependence on God, that's exactly where we end up. We just become focused on ourselves. We become focused on the issues around us. We begin to lose our capacity to, to believe and to hope and to aspire to the things that God has for us and the things that God would call us to. 
We even become critical of other people. Why? Because we're ignoring what it is that God wants to deal with in our own heart. And so we just kind of come to church, and we kind of get through the service, and we, we put in the hour and a half. If Paul's not preaching, if he is two hours, we put in the time. But we just kind of got this, you know, dome of silence around us. We're just kind of in a cave. You ever feel that way? Like, I can just kind of move through the workplace. I can move in and out of the service. I can navigate around Christian things, but I'm just kind of in this cave. Like, everything is kind of an echo. I'm not hearing clearly. The passion's not there. The, the presence isn't there. The fruitfulness isn't there. The joy of walking with Christ through the week and through the, through the course of every day at work, it's just not there. It's like I'm in this cave. I'm just kind of shut off. In verse 11, we read that God said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. I find that interesting. I don't want to stretch it and try to draw an application to everything. But God had just answered, you know, the day before by fire. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I were to saw the fire, that's God. Wow, you see God moved that way. God was in our midst. There was fire. And if the scripture says that the Lord wasn't in the fire, what's he saying to Elijah? I think what he's trying to say is that although Elijah had experienced all these great demonstrations of power, that these things were not the source of his strength. Elijah had this history with God that God always had his back whenever he told him when the word would come to him and he'd go do something that God told him to do. God always backed it up. But that is not the source of his identity. It's not in the wind. It's not in the earthquake. It's not in the fire. And we all know the story very well. God was in the sound of a gentle whisper. He was in the sound of a gentle whisper. And I don't want to discount all the things that Elijah experienced that he did. I don't want to discount all the things that we experience in the Lord and that we've been seeing the Lord do in our midst and in and through our lives. These other things will come, and they're all necessary parts of our lives. But hear me, saints, they come because of the quiet moments that we have with God. That's why they come. God is not in those things. That's not who he is. But those things come because of those quiet moments that we spend with him. And Elijah was the man that he was because he positioned himself so that the word of the Lord could come to him. That's why he had the boldness to stand before the king. That's why he had power to challenge hundreds of false prophets. That's why he could pray audacious prayers like calling down fire from heaven and believing that God would answer. That's why. Because he positioned himself in order for the word of the Lord to come to him. And then out of that word, he ministered and God did mighty things. I believe God was saying to Elijah, Elijah, none of those things are the source of your confidence and your strength. Your source is the moments that we spend together. And Elijah, when you lose sight of that, you will begin to fear and you will begin to run away from the very threats of an enemy that I've already defeated. And friends, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. We begin to fear, and we begin to run away from an enemy that Jesus Christ has already defeated because we don't know who we are. But who we are is who we are in Him. And the only way that we understand who we are in Him 
is through the moments that we spend with him. When we position ourselves to receive every day a fresh word from the Lord that he speaks into our spirit and then he begins to move through our lives as we step out in obedience to what he's shown us or we just step out in the confidence of the revelation of who he is to us. I believe this morning the Lord stands at the door of our cave and he asks us, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? I don't know what your winter's been like. I don't know what your plans are for the spring or the summer may be. But I want to encourage us once again, as I said earlier, to understand that our rest is only found in God. And it is only from a place of rest that we actually begin to enter into the joy of the Lord that we actually live in his joy, that we actually minister just in the beauty and simplicity of watching him do things we never thought he would do, but he does it and we see him do it because we have a sensitivity in our spirit to what he's doing around us and what he's doing in us because of the moments that we spend with him. It's not complicated, but if we allow ourselves to move away from that priority, if we allow ourselves at any time to think that, oh, we're all that without him, if we allow pride to come into our life and we look around us and things are going well, things are pretty good, we're, we're pretty blessed. We're even a little bit better than the other person. Don't tell them that. They probably know it already, but we're a little bit better. When we come to that place, I really believe the Holy Spirit would just pull us back. You may be here this morning and say, Pastor, you know, as I go into the spring, I'm just, I'm so looking forward to vacation. I'm so looking forward to getting away from work, all that kind of natural stuff. But I wonder how many of us here would say in our hearts, you know, Pastor, if I'm really honest in my spirit, I'm just feeling dry. I just kind of feel in my spirit the same way that I feel physically. I've just, I've just allowed the pace of life or I've allowed things that I've been going through or I've allowed the weariness of the season, whatever it is, to just kind of, you know, I'm going with my nose to the grind, but, but I just feel in my spirit that I'm drying up. I just feel, you know, I'm just reacting to things I normally wouldn't act, react to. I'm, I've, got a, I've got an edge to my temperament. You know, there's, there's stress in relationships, whatever it may be. And in your mind, you're just thinking, I just need to get away. I just need a change of scenery. And the Lord's saying, no, that's not what you need. What you need is me. What you need is to be reminded that you think that you can go on without me, and you can't. It's about you and me. And the reason that you're fearful, the reason you even run away things that never would have routed you before is because you're doing it in your own strength. I really believe the Lord loves us too much to let us live a life that makes him unnecessary. I'm going to ask the musicians to join me. <clears throat> and as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, I want you to invite you to do something in your own heart that I'm going to do as I come to the Lord's table. I've already done this week. And I want to invite you to ask the Lord to forgive you. As I say, Lord, forgive me for pride that has crept into my own heart. Lord, forgive me for, for feelings, however subtle they may be. Forgive me for feelings of, of superiority. Forgive me for feelings even of, of, of self-sufficiency. You know, that somehow I'm okay on my own. That somehow I, I can just keep going like I'm going. I can burn the candle on, on both ends. I'm okay. Life is good. Or Lord, please forgive me for that subtle pride that creeps in that makes me think that somehow I'm better than the other person. Or get this, we may even be better than another church or better than another ministry. God, forgive us if we ever allow those things to creep in because we are nothing 
without his presence. That's what prayerlessness is. Prayerlessness is the declaration that, Lord, we just we really don't need you anymore. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want us to ask the Lord to search our hearts and forgive us if any of us have believed the subtle lie that, Lord, I can go another day without you. I can just continue on without daily dependent upon you. I'm not saying we're all there, but in very subtle ways, I believe all of us contend with that in some way or another. Anybody else? Yeah, just life gets busy. Or maybe life is going well. There's no real emergency yet, and so we just kind of continue on with our routine. But there will come a time that the Lord will just graciously remove his presence for a few moments. And he'll allow the stress to come, and he'll allow the, 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 that edge to be there. He'll allow the dryness to come. He'll allow us finding ourselves rattled, pressured, making wrong choices. Whatever it may be, he's just trying to remind us that we need him, that we need his presence. And I want to encourage us as we move into the spring and move into the summer season that we'd make a determination even this morning before it's too late and say, Lord, I just want to come back to you. I want to make sure, I want to make sure that you are my source of refreshing. I want to make sure, Lord, that you are the one that I really know, not just about you, not just the things that you do, not the things I've experienced, <clears throat> but Lord, my confidence really is in my relationship with you, in getting alone with you, that Lord, I am daily dependent on you and on your grace.